Acts chapter 15, verses 30 through 41. If you recall from last Sunday, the decision was made by James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, that the Gentile converts should abstain from four things in particular. Those were from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. And as we observed, these four things related to activities that took place within pagan temples that were found all across the Roman Empire. So it made sense that the Gentile believer in Jesus should pay particular attention to avoiding these practices, especially since their non-believing Jewish neighbors were watching and watching closely. So a letter was composed that would be taken to the Gentile churches, and this letter would ensure them that it is not necessary to be circumcised or to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. It is faith in Jesus alone that saves anyone, Jew or Gentile. And these four essentials that were mentioned will benefit both Gentile Christians and their witness. And so Paul and Barnabas, along with Silas and a man named Judas, were given the task of taking this letter to the churches, the Gentile churches. And that is where we will pick up on our reading, starting at verse 30. Chapter 15, starting at verse 30 in the book of Acts. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there... They were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." This is God's Word. In this first section of our passage this morning, verses 30 through 34, there is a description. A description. The first destination of the group that was sent out from Jerusalem with the letter for the Gentile churches was the home church of Paul and Barnabas, that is, the church at Antioch. And when they got there, they called the brothers and sisters together and they read the letter to them. This was standard practice. Many people at this time period could not read, and they could not read these letters. So instead of the letter being circulated among the people, it would simply be read aloud for all to hear. The Christians in Antioch, as you read in verse 31, rejoiced because of its encouragement. How could they not? It confirmed to them that the false teaching that has so troubled them 
the teaching that is that, that said they must add works to their faith in order to be saved, that lie had been roundly condemned. Not only by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, but also, and most importantly, by the Holy Spirit. If you look back in cha- uh, verse 28 of chapter 15, it reads, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. So the Lord had spoken through his people, the church, and as a result, the believers in Antioch were greatly encouraged. Judas and Silas, the two brothers from Jerusalem that accompanied Barnabas and Paul, then stood up to speak. And verse 32 tells us that they were prophets. Now, based on how we have already noticed that prophecy operates in the book of Acts, and therefore in our churches today, we know that Judas and Silas spoke truth into the moment. That is what prophecy is. They were speaking into the moment things that the Holy Spirit spontaneously brought to their minds. But of course, what they said was according to the Word of God. True prophecy always is. And we know that the lengthy message they brought was relevant and inspired. We know that because we read that Judas and Silas encouraged and strengthened the brethren. Let me just say that I love how practical the book of Acts is. Like the example of the verses we're considering here, it is so full of practical descriptions that apply to every church in every age. I don't mean there's an exact correspondence. Acts is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we do not look at the accounts of the early church in Acts in order to try to replicate or copy the circumstances, copy exactly what the early Christians did. First century Antioch is not 21st century America. We are separated not only by centuries of time, but also by by cultural and societal differences, in some ways, vast differences. So I I cannot approach Acts like like a checklist and simply say, if I do this and I do that and this, exactly like the church in Antioch did those things, then God will work in this church just like he did in the church in Antioch. Acts is not a rule book to follow. It's not prescriptive. It does not prescribe a formula. But the book of Acts is descriptive. It's descriptive. It describes situations within the early church in which the Holy Spirit moved. We read these descriptions. We glean principles from them. And we, in turn, attempt to apply those basic truths with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to our situation. Let me try to explain that further. We do not read verse 32 and say, okay, listen up, here's what we're going to do. We need to find two followers of of Jesus um, that are from Jerusalem who also happen to be prophets. We're going to invite them to our church, and after... They read a letter to us that reminds us to stay away from pagan temples. We will then listen to this long tag team sermon from these two guys. And that is going to be the recipe for how we are encouraged 
and strengthened. I know that sounds silly. And I know you're probably thinking, of course, that is not how we apply that verse to our congregation. But actually, there are, there are people who, who try to read Acts this way, looking for a formula. Do this, do that, pull this lever, push that button, and then our church will be in the will of God. Um, like if we meet in a house, like the early church did, meet in homes, then God will bless us. If we determine who has gifts of prophecy and we call them prophets, then God's going to move among us. Or if we plug into the equation as many of these variables as possible or recreate the circumstances as near as possible, God will bless us. There is thinking along those lines. That would be the prescriptive approach. But again, Acts is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. So, how do we read it descriptively? What am I getting at? Well, descriptive reading is what I've been attempting to do as we've moved through the book of Acts together. I'm trying to draw out principles that are universal, basic truths that apply to every church, in every age, in every place. And so, for example, a principle that I see with the visit of Silas and Judas to Antioch is this. Our congregation, right here at Salem, we need to be willing to receive exhortation from those from other congregations. We need to be open to those that God might bring to us from time to time, those that come from the outside, but are brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think that's pretty basic. I think we all understand that. We need to guard against living in self-imposed isolation, which some churches do, thinking that we cannot benefit from the ministry of others, even if we may differ from them on some points. We can certainly benefit from them. Look, the Christians in Antioch, they were largely Gentiles converted from pagan backgrounds. Silas and Judas were believing Jews from a very Jewish background. We might say that they were from a different denomination, if you want to think of it that way. Yet the Lord uses them to speak truth into the moment, truth that was applicable, truth that spiritually built up the church in Antioch. The book of Acts is a description of the early church. It is not a prescription for every church. What do prescriptions do? They give you exact dosages. They need to be followed. But what do descriptions do? Descriptions give you general principles. Prescriptions give you points to follow to the letter. But descriptions are more like a painting than a prescription pad. You can, you can trace the lines of a painting. You can note the shading. You can observe the, the perspective. And then you have this healthy idea of how to expect the Lord to work in the future. He's going to work along the same lines that he's worked in the past. But it will be unique. It will be specifically suited for our time, our needs, and our circumstances. And so with this idea in mind that we read Acts descriptively, a description, it places us in a position to consider the next event in our text, starting in verse 36. We go from a description to a conflict. A conflict. After Silas and Judas returned to Jerusalem from Antioch, 
Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. That's verse 35. Now, you probably have a verse 34 that says it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And your verse 34 probably has brackets around it, as mine does. And the reason for that is because earliest manuscripts do not actually have that verse. And in fact, that verse does not really make sense because we read later on that, that Silas, in fact, did not remain there. So in other words, it was, it was probably added by a, by a scribe at some point and was not in the original text, but they did include it in there. And so that, that is the reason for it, just to point that out, if you're wondering. So what we have here is we have Paul and Barnabas probably remaining at their home church through the winter in Antioch, waiting for the spring to come around that will offer suitable travel conditions. You can't travel during the winter very well. And it says in verse 36, after some days, which lets us know that a considerable amount of time has passed, at least a few months. However, though Paul was teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, along with Barnabas in Antioch, strengthening the church there, his thoughts, Paul's thoughts, kept turning to all those churches that he and Barnabas had established in Asia Minor. No doubt, they were frequently the subject of his prayers as well. And finally, he mentions to Barnabas in verse 36, let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Well, this is no small suggestion. might sound like it to us, but it's not as if they can just go to the airport, take a flight, and, and do this short-term mission trip and say hello to everyone. It's not what's happening here. Nor was it Paul's intention that they simply reconnect with the churches. He has a burden for their spiritual well-being. This will be a physically and emotionally taxing ministry investment. The second missionary journey coming up here. It's going to involve some very intense travel, much of it on foot, over great and rugged distances. It will mean returning to places where the two apostles were persecuted. It will take them away for perhaps another two years or even longer. Not only will this trip involve teaching, exhorting, and admonishing the believers in all the churches and the cities where they previously visited, it will also probably involve preaching the gospel in new places and establishing churches in those as well. So this one short statement of verse 36 is pregnant with implications. Paul knows what lies ahead when he suggested. Barnabas too understands that the demands that such a journey are going to lay upon them. And Barnabas agrees with Paul's suggestion. But as they discuss who to take with them, a disagreement arises. Barnabas wants Mark, John Mark, who we've previously met, which is actually Barnabas' cousin, to accompany them. Paul does not. So we read in verse 38 Paul's reason for his position. Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We read of that back in chapter 13, verse 13. After Paul and Barnabas and Mark had left the island of Cyprus on their first missionary journey, they arrived at the port city of Pamphylia. But before they continued north across the rugged Taurus Mountains, Mark left and he returned to Jerusalem. We don't know his reasons for doing so, but Paul obviously considered it desertion. John Mark had made this commitment to ministry. He had answered what he felt like was a call to accompany Paul 
and Barnabas, and they allowed him to do so, to apprentice under them, so that um, this was a privilege, a, a weighty responsibility that was given to Mark. We don't know exactly what Barnabas thought about Mark's desertion. I'm sure he was disappointed. I'm sure he was even grieved. Yet, more than two years had passed since that time. And here's what we see at the outset of the second missionary journey. Barnabas wants to give Mark another chance. Paul does not. Barnabas sees potential in Mark. Paul might see potential too, but he doesn't want to risk being abandoned by him a second time. He can do ministry. Just let him do it with someone else. What we notice first in this, first of all, is that conflict will arise between God's workers. Disagreements are never desirable. No one likes conflict. Or if you do, that's probably an area that you need to repent in. Even though conflict is undesirable, we understand from experience and from this text that sometimes conflict is unavoidable. Here we have these two mature Christians, two leaders, two apostles, two men who have already been greatly used by the Lord, and they cannot come to a consensus about what to do. Now, now there's no disagreement about the mission. Both Paul and Barnabas are focused on the task that Jesus has called them to. There is unity and purpose. The disagreement lies in how to best accomplish that purpose. This disagreement, it is, it is not personal. Barnabas loves Paul. He was the one who, who laid hold of Paul after his conversion, uh, conversion so many years before and introduced him to the apostles in Jerusalem. They were all very, very leery of him because of his former life, because he was a persecutor. He was a, he was a hunter down of Christians. But Paul laid hold of him and said, this guy's all right. Jesus has really done a work in his life. Barnabas believed in Paul when no one else trusted him. Barnabas mentored Paul. Barnabas was willing to even sit back and allow Paul to take the lead when it was clear that he was the more gifted communicator of the two. Barnabas was an encourager. And he exercised his gift of encouragement by regularly encouraging Paul. Paul also loved Barnabas. It went both ways. Barnabas was in many ways, as I mentioned, his mentor in the faith. They traveled together. They ministered together. They, they risked their lives together. Why do soldiers on the battlefield have such a strong bond? Because they risked their lives together. A bond that's forged, unlike any other bond. This was, this was not personal conflict. This was not a situation where the two men were attacking each other's character. They were not questioning one another's motives, but they did disagree on the way forward. Sometimes disagreement arises between God's workers. Secondly, sometimes there is no right side. Sometimes there is no right side. By right, I mean the side which God took in the matter. I do not see in the text how we can determine who was in the right and who was in the wrong. Now, perhaps depending on your personality, you, you, will, you will tend to lean toward one or the other. You tend to support Paul more, you tend to support Barnabas, Barnabas more. That's probably largely 
your perspective, maybe based on your own personality, but you can understand, though maybe not agree, with both perspectives. Barnabas seems to take a redemptive approach here, a redemptive approach. He acknowledges that Mark failed in his commitment the first time around, but people change. Thank God people change. Thank God that God changes people, right? Amen? Mark has had time to learn from his mistakes and grow, and to grow in spiritual maturity. Barnabas strongly feels like that he should give Mark a second chance. Now this makes sense as we consider the character of Barnabas. Here is a man who is a champion of the misunderstood, a champion of the neglected, of the underdog. Like he did with Paul years before, Barnabas sees potential where no one else does. He breathes life into others with words of encouragement. An encourager tends to look at the positive characteristics of another person and downplay the negative. It's just their nature. An encourager like Barnabas has hope, even if there does not seem to be any reason to entertain that the person in question will ever be able to rise above their current position or status. Barnabas longs to see redemption in action, transforming Mark's failure into spiritual success. What about Paul? Well, Paul, on the other hand, perhaps has the words of Jesus in mind when it comes to Mark. Luke 9.62 No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Paul is thinking about the call to discipleship. The call to follow with a single heart. Mark received that call and then left the work to go home. He did not persevere. Now, I'm sure that Paul has not written Mark off as a brother. He is not arguing that Mark is no longer worthy of fellowship. That's not what's happening here. Paul is simply thinking about the high, holy, and sober responsibility of ministry. This is not a week-long neighborhood VBS. This is a multi-year, life-risking, and difficult undertaking. How can he give Mark responsibility in this area when this is the very area where Mark failed? You know, Paul might even be willing to give Mark a, a chance in, in other areas of ministry, just not at the moment when he and Barnabas are about to set out on this arduous missionary journey. And maybe he thought Mark would be a poor example to the young churches. Paul's estimation, this is not a time to test Mark. It's not a time to test him to see if he's willing and capable to go along. Paul owed so much to Barnabas. He loved him. He respected him. Paul would never allow a conflict to divide them unless he was thoroughly convinced that he was in the right. Of course, the same goes for Barnabas. Both men possessed the Holy Spirit. Both men were wise. Both men were seasoned veterans of following King Jesus. These are not rookies here. Both men were convinced that their respective position was the right one. This word translated sharp disagreement down in verse 39. It's a word that means differing to the point of suffering pain. The conflict was painful for both of them. It was heart-wrenching even. Luke, of course, the writer of Acts, 
seems to intentionally not disclose his opinion on who is in the right. There is no direct judgment from the word of God on the matter. It's like the conflict is left hanging, unresolved, which we don't do very well with. I know I don't. But in this, we must remember, thirdly, God never delights in conflict. God never delights in conflict. The rule of a kingdom is peace. Romans 12, 18. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. And God has called us to peace. What is the will of God? God desires peace. So there's no doubt that the ideal outcome would have been for both men to agree. Either Mark should go along or Mark should not go along. But that's not the outcome. There's been a division. Unity was not achieved. There is a break that has occurred between two brothers. Not a break in fellowship, but a break in how each felt led to pursue the mission. Verse 39, there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. We should not read into this that God was pleased with the disunity. We should not read into it that it was God's will that they separate. Why not? Well, it seems to me that if, if it was God's desire that they separate, then the Lord would have made that clear. He would have shown each of them that, it, that it's time to split up. I mean, the Holy Spirit, which at times leads so specifically in the book of Acts, could have specifically made it known that he was leading a new team led by Barnabas to Cyprus and another new team led by Paul to Syria and Cilicia. As we'll see, God certainly used the conflict, both in the short term and in the far future. But just because God uses something, think a talking donkey to get the attention of Balaam back in Numbers 22, just because God uses something does not mean that he delights in it. This passage does, does not give us an excuse to quarrel with someone. This passage does not justify your conflict with another person. What this passage does teach us is this. Fourthly, God is able to use conflict to further his purposes. What was the purpose of God? That purpose to which he had called Paul and Barnabas. God desired that the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed, that new churches be established, and that established churches be strengthened. And that is what both Paul and Barnabas desired as well. And that is what they are both working toward. Were there personal feelings involved? Sure. Surely so. You know, you, you cannot really detach your personal feelings from a situation. You can try. But we are, we are a bundle as human beings of thoughts and emotions and choices and all those things get so intertwined and tangled together that it's really hard to be neutral in a situation and completely remove your feelings from it. Now, you should be able to set your feelings aside in order to do God's will if his will runs contrary to your feelings. But both men felt strongly that he was in the right. Both felt sure about his position. 
and both grieved at the pain caused by being in conflict with a brother. Yet they both still moved forward, just in different directions, literally. Their conflict did not result in inaction. Conflict is draining, right? Nobody likes it. It can cause you very easily to cease moving forward if you allow it to do so. Even though the matter was unresolved, Paul and Barnabas knew that the work of God could not be neglected. So in spite of the pain caused by the conflict, they each moved forward with the mission of God. Each man just came up with his own solution. Barnabas, verse 40, took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So how did God use this conflict to further his purposes? Well, now there are two missionary teams instead of one. That's a good thing. One team will go south, one team will go north. Instead of a two-man team, there are two two-man teams. The gospel will be proclaimed to more people, more churches will be established, and more established churches will be strengthened. God's purposes are not brought to a standstill by man's conflict. The only way that this mission would have ceased its forward momentum was if both men refused to budge until the other agreed to his terms. But since both Paul and Barnabas were determined to see the purposes of God unfold, God stepped in and providentially honored the willingness of both men. Even in conflict, there is a way forward. There is a way forward because God is not bound by your inability to agree with another person. He desires that you agree. He longs for you to be in unity. But God is not going to press the pause button on his agenda until you can come to a consensus with someone else. Again, this is not justifying disagreements. This is not justifying conflict between Christians. This is demonstrating that conflict and disagreement are not strong enough to tie God's hands. So finally, we observe, fifthly, finally, God was vindicated. God was vindicated. <clears throat> we see this vindication in that God uses both Mark and Silas. How? Well, Silas, he will go on to be a consistent traveling partner of Paul's. We're going to see him pop up again and again as we go through the book of Acts. Silas will go on to be the co-author with Paul and Timothy of both letters to the Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. If you go read the, the heading in both those letters, you'll see the name Silas is one of the authors. Silas will also be the one that Peter, the Apostle Peter, uses to write down his first letter, that is 1st Peter. Silas is the scribe of that letter. You can find that in 1st Peter chapter 5. What about Mark? Well, he's going to go in to write the Gospel of Mark. I would say that's a pretty significant achievement. Mark is also credited in church history with taking the Gospel to Egypt. Egypt is now a Muslim country, but it hasn't always been. Before Islam overran Egypt, probably back in the 7th century, 7th or 8th century, it was a thoroughly Christianized land. All of North Africa was Christian for that matter. Mark took the gospel to Egypt. 
Barnabas' judgment that Mark should be given a second chance will be vindicated. God still has plans for Mark. God will still use him. And a large part of preparing Mark for his future ministry, no doubt, was his experiences of traveling with Barnabas. Mark will also go on to be a valuable colleague and a friend of Paul. Of Paul. Paul mentions Mark in Colossians 4.10 as someone that the Colossian church should welcome when he comes to them. And Paul, as an older man in prison in Rome, in Paul's last imprisonment before his death, he will specifically ask for Mark to come with Timothy to him. 2 Timothy 4.11. He asked Timothy to bring Mark along when he comes. So surely Paul, in later years, realized that Mark had come to be a mighty instrument in the hands of the Lord. Paul's choosing of Silas will be vindicated. Barnabas' choosing of Mark will be vindicated. It's a win-win. Beyond this, however, God will be vindicated. It was the Lord who took this conflict and used Paul and Barnabas to train two men, Silas and Mark, that would both go on to have this profound impact for the kingdom of God. Neither man, neither Paul nor Barnabas, could foresee any of this. Neither can you see the future. Both Paul and Barnabas saw potential in another. Paul and Silas, Barnabas and Mark, and both men were proved to be right in their investment in these two lives. Don't miss that. Now, I could personally easily argue that Barnabas' redemptive approach was the correct one. His estimation of Mark's potential proved true. His willingness to allow Mark the space to fail again resulted in Mark's success. I think that Barnabas' view is, is, is close to the heart of God. You know, we serve a God who always gives us another chance. God delights using our mistakes and our failures to show the greatness of his sufficiency and grace. It's good news for all of us. But it could also be argued that since Paul is the one Luke will continue to focus on and not Barnabas in the book of Acts, that that's an indication that Paul's position was the correct one. And notice too that it was Paul and Silas who were the ones commissioned by the church when they were sent out. We don't read that about Barnabas and, Silas, and, Barnabas and Mark. But again, I believe that the vagueness of the scripture on the matter is intentional. The lesson here is not about one person being in the right and the other being in the wrong. Even if one was more in the right than the other. The lesson here is that even in conflict, the Lord will accomplish his purposes. Even in division, the Lord is not divided. Even in disagreement, we can agree that the kingdom work must go on. And in all of this, in all of this, we behold the grace of God. God did not use Paul and Silas because they were in the right. God did not use Barnabas and Mark because they were in the right. God used Paul and Silas and God used Barnabas and Mark because God uses imperfect people who make imperfect decisions. God uses people who fall into conflict and disagreement because the reason that God uses you 
or me or anyone else has nothing to do with whether or not we are perfect in peace and spotless in our interactions. It's not why God uses us. God uses you and me and anyone else for one reason and one reason only. And that reason is Jesus Christ. Jesus was no stranger to conflict. But in every conflict, he was right. In every disagreement, Jesus was the one who spoke plain and perfect truth. In every chaotic situation, Jesus brought peace, even if that peace was not received. The only one to never sin was judged as a sinner on the cross. The only one who was perfectly at peace with God and himself was punished as a troublemaker and as a common criminal, as a divider, as one who brings conflict. Because the wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus, it will never be poured out on the person who places their trust in him. Because Jesus endured the conflict and chaos that sin brings into our lives, endured that conflict and chaos unto death, you can be assured that conflict will not have the final say. You see, and we understand all conflict is caused by sin. Before sin came into the world in Genesis 3, there was no conflict. There's no disagreement. But as long as, as this world remains until Jesus returns, so will conflict and disagreement. Yet Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered the conflict and chaos when he reversed the effects of sin, which is death, by rising from the dead. And now you have the assurance, if you are a Christian, that the undeserved favor of God will always flow toward you. Jesus Christ has removed every barrier that would stand in the way of God's undeserved favor, that would stand in the way of his grace operating in your life. I want you to hear this as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. The love of God as demonstrated at the cross, tells you that your worst moments do not define you. The love of God at the cross tells you that your best moments do not define you. Your worst moments, mistakes, sin, bad decisions, they do not define you. And your best moments, where you make the best decisions and act in the best possible way, do not define you either because they don't earn you any points before God. Your best moments are not what God takes into account when he looks at you. The love of God is demonstrated at the cross, shows you that as a Christian, you are defined by one thing and one thing alone. And that is Jesus Christ.
He is who defines you. Not the worst thing you could do or have done. Not the best thing you could do or have done. Only Jesus Christ. It is before him that you receive your identity before God as a child of God. It is because of him, because of Jesus Christ, that you receive the undeserved favor of God. That's grace. And it's because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, that no matter the conflict or the disagreement or the imperfect decision, you can be assured that God is not done with you. In fact, God will delight to take those things, the worst that you have done, and work in such a way that he will be glorified, that his kingdom will advance, and that you will not, not stand on the ground before him of your own failings or of your own achievements, but you will stand on the ground of Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning that your grace is sufficient, that your grace is overriding and overruling, and that even in our conflicts, in our disagreements with others, in our lack of unity, even when we're at our worst, Father, that does not define us, and that does not determine the future. Lord, we stand on the, the ground of the blood of Jesus Christ this morning. And we just ask, Lord, that you would begin to search our hearts as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.